steeped in folklore, mythology, and stories of the unexplained that date back to Roman times, nowhere offers more tales of the unknown than this frightened kingdom. Good evening and welcome to the launch episode of Frightened Kingdom. I'm your host, EJ, and every fortnight I'll explore a new batch of unexplained tales from the United Kingdom. I need your help to do that. As this podcast grows, it's my intention that it will consist almost entirely of your stories. Those can be ghost stories, cryptid sightings, UFO experiences, or anything else that you just can't explain. In this first episode, because we're just beginning, I'll share a mix of listener submissions and stories sourced elsewhere, from Reddit to medieval texts. You have two weeks from today to submit your paranormal stories for inclusion in my next episode. They don't have to be full-length epic horror tales, they don't need to scare me so much I can't sleep, but they do have to be unexplained, and they do have to take place in the British Isles. To send me your stories, you can email me at frightenkingdom at gmail.com, or record yourself at speakpipe.com forward slash frightenkingdom. If you enjoy this first episode, you can help me massively by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. At the moment, my sound quality is not what I want it to be. It is borderline impossible on an iPhone mic to have two recordings that sound the same, even recordings taken 30 minutes apart in the same room where I literally have not moved will sound completely different. How's that for unexplained? So please do subscribe, rate and review so that we can grow and I can justify buying a proper microphone. We're starting this episode and launching the Frightened Kingdom Library of Unexplained Tales with an audio submission from Joy, who recalls an unsettling experience in her childhood. Now trust me, listener, it's a belter. Now over to Joy. Hello, my name is Joy. I have a strange, spooky event that happened in my life which I'd like to share with you. It happened to me when I was 11, and I promise you this is 100% true. I wrote it down first to read aloud because I was worried that I would lose the thread. I hope you enjoy. My grandfather was an abusive, volatile man. So much so, my mother cut him out of her life from the age of 16. Fast forward to my mother and father's wedding, 1937. My mom had listed on the marriage certificate, father deceased. One of my mother's 14 siblings must have talked about the upcoming marriage because as they came out of the church, a man approached my father, introducing himself as the father of the bride. Fast forward, my parents married 18 years and six children later. My father gets wind that my mother's father was, had nowhere to live and no one would take him in so he'd be headed for the poorhouse. So then all of a sudden there's a very tall, to me very old stranger, living in our house. I don't remember ever having a conversation with him. I remember he didn't like me and would pinch me any time I forgot and got too close. He seemed to like my brothers. He had the smallest room in the house which I only ever went into to deliver cups of tea or a sandwich. It was on one of these occasions when I was asked to take his tea that I noticed him lying on his side, his eyes wide open, staring. I thought at me, 
but when I told him his tea was there, he just kept staring. He didn't blink. I told my mother, grandfather is asleep with his eyes wide open. Of course, he had died. I don't remember the funeral. Sometime later, being the youngest and a girl with five older brothers, my father turned grandfather's room into mine. I was so happy. Until, just three nights after moving in, something terrified happened. I woke, hearing my name called, and knew something was very wrong. I couldn't move my legs. Something was crushing them, holding them down. I was so afraid, frozen. Eventually, I opened my eyes to see him, my grandfather, sitting on my legs, staring with the same dead, unblinking eyes. I somehow managed to cry out. Mother and father came running, and as soon as the light goes on, the weight and he disappear. Oddly, I remember agreeing with my mother that it was a bad dream, even though I didn't believe it. She seemed to need more reassurance than me. My brother David slept in my bedroom for a while, and I had to have the light on at all times. Sadly, this was not the end. Fast forward. Time to spend my usual school holidays with my grandmother in Hereford. By the time it was time for me to return home, I'd managed to put it out of my mind. On return, my best friend of many years greeted me, as she'd been away for a few months. We were so excited to see one another again, excitedly chatting and catching up. When my friend Carol, looking up to my bedroom window, waving her hand, casually said, Your grandfather's waving at you. I knew if I turned around, something bad was going to happen. I quietly told Carol, my grandfather died three months ago. Oh, chills. Thank you, Joy. That was a really excellent story to start the show with. I couldn't have asked for more. I said at the beginning of this episode that your stories didn't need to scare me so much I can't sleep, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't hoping they would. And this one might just do the trick. It's horrible. Joy, if you've managed a single solid night's sleep since that happened to you, you're a champ. Now, typically after a story, I will talk a little about some potential explanations for the events. In this case, I think most people would propose sleep paralysis as the most obvious explanation. It's responsible for at least half of the user horror stories on Reddit and beyond, and this does fit the bill, until that second encounter, in which a third-party witness, without prompting or any awareness of the initial events, actually sees the impossible without realising that she is seeing the impossible. It's crazy. Like I said, chills. I've got nothing, really. I can't explain the second encounter. And of course, it adds a lot of credence to the first. and makes me rethink that, that usual leap to sleep paralysis. Joy, thank you again for recording your story. We'd love to hear more from you. Our second story this episode is an emailed submission from Kim H., concerning her experiences in a student house in Chester, some years ago. Kim says, During my second year of university, I lived in a run-down Victorian house in Chester City Centre, UK. I shared the six-bedroom house with five other housemates, 
It was in serious need of renovation, with a significant damp problem in all of the rooms. It was constantly freezing due to a lack of insulation and old windows that had cracks around the frames. There was a basement where a washing machine was kept and used for storage, and there was an external door from the basement that led out onto the street. It had an old clothes press in front of it, which I can only assume was for security. There was a front and back garden, but they were both overgrown and littered with rubbish, including an old toilet and broken furniture. The house was so run down that when a new friend found out where I lived, they were shocked, as they thought the house was abandoned. The state of the house was never really an issue to me, as much as the vibe of the place. It had such a creepy feeling, like you were always being watched. I had an upstairs bedroom, which I tried to make homely by painting, adding pictures, etc. Like all the others, my room had damp, and every few months this gooey substance, almost like honey, started to form on the wall above the fireplace. My housemates and I joked that it was ectoplasm, but there was some kind of issue going on with the old fireplace. The creepy stuff started a few months after I had moved in. I would wake up startled often, convinced I had seen a shadow figure in a corner of the room. Each time I put the lamp on, there was nothing there. The main light in the room also started to turn on by itself. I assumed it was just me being forgetful at first, but I started to record myself turning the light off, and when I came home, I would see that it was on. My room was always locked, with only myself having a key. A couple of times, I felt something stroke or move my hair when I was in bed. I tried to shrug it off, but one night I mentioned it to my housemate who lived in the room next to mine. I thought he would think I was being silly, but he just nodded and said, Oh, yeah, that's happened to me, too. He had woken up to something stroking his hair. After mentioning some of these things to one of my other friends, who had lived in the house the year before and whose bedroom went on to become mine, she told me that she had gotten a weird feeling from one particular corner of the room, like something was always watching her. It was the corner that I had thought I'd seen a shadow figure in. Although I never saw an actual ghost during my time there, I did have a scary experience one night. I woke up struggling to breathe and feeling like there was pressure on my chest. I started to panic as I attempted to breathe, but I felt weighed down and struggled to move. Eventually, I was able to let out a cry and jumped out of bed to turn the light on. After seeing nothing, I just kind of sat there. I put it down to sleep paralysis, though I had never experienced it before and nor have I since. After that night, I always slept with the light on, and I put off going to bed for as long as possible. Although only a few of us experienced anything creepy in that house, pretty much everyone who lived there experienced dark times, both personally and mentally. I believe the house has been sold since my time there and has now been renovated. It's not somewhere I would like to visit again. Thank you to Kim for sharing that unsettling tale from Chester. I too went to university in the city of Chester, and though my student house came with its own fair share of unsettling experiences, it at least was recently renovated warm and dry. I've always taken that for granted until now. There's a lot to unpack in Kim's story, but I'm going to focus on what I find most unsettling of all. That gooey substance that oozed from the walls in number 21. It's curious how often strange substances and mysterious ooze appear in paranormal tales around the world. 
There are, perhaps, some rational explanations in a house that was in severe disrepair, with a noted damp problem. I am not a damp expert, but I wonder, could this have been some sort of fungus? A manifestation of damp-dwelling mould, a lichen? There have even been some instances where a concealed beehive, hidden for years inside the walls of a neglected home, have resulted in actual honey oozing out of the walls and ceilings. Kim notes that the substance was honey-like, but could it have been actual honey? Now that I'm on that track, I wonder, could a feeling of unease be caused by the presence of a large number of bees, hidden from view, but just detectable to human instinct as a nearby threat, putting everyone present on edge? Perhaps that's a stretch. But I do wonder about lichen or mould. In my paranormal research for this podcast, I have come across multiple stories in which apparently ghostly bloodstains, smears, and prints on the walls of old homes were found, in later years, to be a red lichen common to damp old buildings in cool climates. That doesn't explain the honey-like ooze that Kim experienced, but it is a curious similarity. In one of my favourite small press collections of ghost tales, Some Ghostly Tales of Shropshire, that's my home county, published in 1988, Author Christine McCarthy recounts that up until recently, at Lillers Hall Abbey, a former monastery dating from 1148, one particular cell was known in local law to have been the place of a grisly murder centuries ago, due to a patch of blood staining the floor, which, no matter how diligently scrubbed and washed away, would reappear shortly after, recalling that brutal act. Unfortunately, modern science enabled a sample of the blood to be tested, and it was found to be nothing more than a sticky species of red lichen which still grows on the floor of the cell today. There are two wolves inside me, listeners, one which hates when good mysteries are solved, and one which longs to solve them. Perhaps Kim's strange ooze was a simple case of a building left to rot, and the strange ways nature makes itself known when left to its own devices. Perhaps, though, like the strange, disembodied hand stroking Kim and her male housemate's hair each night, it simply cannot be explained. Either way, I share your sentiment on the house at number 21, Kim. I won't be visiting any time soon. As I said at the beginning of this episode, it's my intention that in future, all of my episodes will be made up of listener stories like Kim's and Joy's. Until that time, I will be sharing the stories I'm sent as well as some stories drawn from the treasure trove of paranormal stories that is the internet. Just as with any story that is sent to me here, I can't verify their authenticity, I can't guarantee that no fiction will creep into this podcast, but it's not my intention. My intention is to share stories that people believe are true, at the very least. As well as the internet, I'll draw on some of the print sources in my collection, We heard earlier from Ghostly Tales of Shropshire by Christine McCarthy, and we certainly will again. Wherever I refer to a print source, I will credit the author, title, and year of publication. This information will also be included in my episode notes, and I do recommend you check them out. If you enjoy this podcast, I'm sure you'll enjoy getting to know my sources too. Now, at the end of Kim's story, I mentioned Lillishaw Abbey. And now I'm tempted to go ahead and mention it again, because it just so happens that it has more to offer than some disappointing red lichen. Let's return to Christine McCarthy's book of Shropshire ghost stories for a closer look at this 12th century ruin. 
1988, coincidentally the year I was born, the then custodian of Lillishall Abbey told Christine McCarthy a story passed to her by her predecessor. This man lived in a bungalow on the Abbey grounds, and each morning he would take his Jack Russell dog for a walk through the Abbey's ruined church. One morning, the dog became very upset and wouldn't enter the church. So this custodian stopped in the church doorway. The dog had its hackles up and was growling. So thinking there may be intruders inside, the custodian hurried quietly in and saw a figure kneeling about six feet from the east window, which is, of course, where an altar would be when the church was in use. The figure he saw was cloaked in black, like a monk. The custodian shouted to the man, Hey, what are you doing in here? And the man, the monk, got slowly to his knees, with all the difficulty of any old man standing up from the floor. In his right hand, he held a thick, gnarled walking stick. He smiled at the custodian and asked, Have you discovered the secret of Lillishall Abbey? The custodian, having no idea what he was talking about, asked, What secret? And the monk replied simply, You will know when the time is ripe. At this point, the custodian heard his dog whine and turned to check on it. And when he turned to look again at the monk, he found that he had vanished. The custodian ran out of the church to chase him. There was only one way he could have left without walking past him and his dog, but he couldn't find any trace of anyone in the abbey grounds. There was no sign of the monk at all, and now his dog was perfectly happy to enter the church without worry. The custodian of 1988 also claimed to have caught a glimpse of the monk, but only briefly, a cloaked shape disappearing around doorways and across halls. The monk has never spoken to her, but interestingly, a spiritualist in the 1930s claimed to have encountered a ghostly monk at Lillishall who spoke in a foreign tongue she couldn't place. This, by the way, immediately makes me think of Old English, which would be indecipherable to us today and which would have been spoken at Lillishall for centuries. In 1932, a young boy living with his parents within the Abbey grounds was unable to sleep for weeks because of the persistent sound in his bedroom of the pages of a large book being turned. The secret of Lillishall Abbey has yet to be uncovered. There are rumours of a grisly murder plot involving King Henry III, who stayed at the Abbey briefly during his reign. The local story goes that King Henry tried to make a quick buck by selling off titles that were already owned and then murdered the man who exposed his plan. The theory goes that the monk of Lillishall was involved and now seeks absolution, waiting for someone to uncover the murder so that he can be at rest. But to be honest, listeners, I don't find any of that particularly believable. Firstly, I don't really think that King Henry III would have to cheat people to make a quick buck. But even if he did, he was the king, and this is a medieval king, so he was king by divine right. He would have no need to kill someone to cover up a little bit of con artistry. He could simply have thrown the guy who accused him in jail, uh, or worse. I also don't see why the monk would be so cheery. Remember, he smiled at the custodian. He was pleased to ask him if he'd discovered the secret. Why would he be so cheery if he was asking whether he'd uncovered the murder that he had helped commit? There are YouTube videos where people claim to be conducting paranormal investigations at Lillishall. Um, there have been voices, footsteps, strange lights. 
There has even been a children's book written about the secret of Lillishall Abbey by Jan Shaw, published in 1995. Unfortunately, what there hasn't been is any conclusion to the story. We don't know what the secret of Lillishall Abbey could be, or if there even is one at all. Which makes this an excellent opportunity for me to ask you for some listener theories. What do you think the secret of Lillishall Abbey could be? Let me know by email at frightenedkingdom at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram at frightenedkingdompodcast. I like talking to people. I'd be really glad to hear what you have to say. The Ghost at Lillishall Abbey is one of my favourite Shropshire tales. I love an enigmatic message from beyond, and I love that hint at an unknown language from that 1930s spiritualist. And now that I'm on monastic grounds, I couldn't resist the temptation to stay with this theme and visit some of the only medieval English horror tales we have recorded, the Byland Abbey Ghost Stories. If you haven't heard of them, the Byland Abbey ghost stories were written in the early 15th century in Yorkshire, in Latin, and record 12 paranormal events supposedly experienced by the rural communities of North Yorkshire in this period. You can read a recent English translation of all 12 stories online thanks to St Anselm College, which has made them available completely free of charge. I'll include a link to that amazing resource in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's hear from some medieval ghosts. Now, I'm going to get animated because I love the Byland ghost stories. I somehow, despite doing a medieval history degree, discovered them only two years ago. Having completed my degree more than ten years ago, it is sinful to me that nobody told me about these earlier, and I am so excited at the prospect that someone listening to this tonight might not know about the Byland Abbey Monk. The first thing you have to know about these stories, and that for some reason is not often talked about in when they're covered, is that the monk of Byland describes these ghosts like some sort of 15th century George A. Romero. Unlike the lifelike, if maybe transparent, ghosts that we're used to, this guy describes the ghosts haunting Yorkshire as decaying corpses, sort of like very sentient zombies. Because the soul of the dead person is not at rest, it's tied to the body, and as the body decays, so does the soul. In one story, story five in the collection, a man witnesses a ghost riding on the back of a local woman and watches, horrified, as the hands of the woman sink deeply into the flesh of the ghost, as though the flesh were rotten and not solid but phantom flesh. In another story, a ghost who no longer has a tongue speaks instead from his bowels, which are hollow and echo. I'm not really sure whether that means that he speaks up from his bowels, out of his mouth, or, well, yeah, let's not go into the alternative option. The Byland ghosts are also able to shapeshift and appear in some of the stories as a raven with fire shooting out of its body, a horse, a dog, a bullock without a mouth, eyes or ears, and uh, a piece of canvas. Just a rotating piece of canvas. I don't know about that one either. Despite being horrifying to behold, mostly, not sure about the canvas, most of the ghosts of Byland Abbey aren't actually malevolent. They're just seeking to rectify past misdeeds, which have left them unable to achieve a good death. 
These are people who died without confessing their sins, resolving their wrongs, or otherwise preparing for the afterlife. Much like our modern spirits with unfinished business, this prompts them to rise from their graves to seek help from the living. They're said to haunt the abbey and surrounding areas, seeking forgiveness, redemption, or assistance from anyone who can aid them. And often, the sins they're trying to resolve are relatively minor. The ghost of a canon of Newburgh Priory is unable to rest because he stole silver spoons in his lifetime. And a poor hired hand can't rest until he's been forgiven for overfeeding his oxen with his master's corn and letting them plough the land too shallowly. I assume shallow ploughing was considered a major faux pas in medieval farming, and that the problem of local folk spoiling their oxen with too much food and not enough work was a big issue in 15th century Byland. And unlike our ghosts, which sometimes show themselves but mostly stay hidden, moving objects, knocking on walls, and otherwise producing phantom sounds, the ghosts of Byland Abbey are not shy about showing themselves and asking for help from the living and they will use a number of tactics to achieve their goals. When he finds his soul can't rest, the decaying corpse ghost of Robert of Kilburn simply wanders around the village in plain sight, standing at windows and doors, waiting for someone to offer assistance. Unfortunately, Byland ghosts can't speak unless commanded to do so in the name of Christ, so all that Robert of Kilburn can do is stand about, decaying for days. He makes his presence extremely known, he's seen by everyone in the village, and he won't go away until eventually a priest takes pity on him and hears his confession, enabling him to rest at last in peace. There are a couple of malevolent entities in the Byland collection, including some revenants, that is, dead people who actually rose from their graves in body to do harm. Like modern ghosts or demons, they upset dogs and bring foul smells, but they also drink blood like vampires, and they seem to exist solely to do harm. That is, they have no unfinished business and they don't seek absolution, but they do hold grudges. In one story, a priest called James Tankerley is said to have dug his way out of his grave, which was within the grounds of Byland Abbey, and shambled all six miles to attack his former mistress, Upon reaching her home, this revenant doesn't stand politely outside and wait for help like Robert of Kilburn. He gouges out one of her eyes. In response, the monks of Byland dig him up by daylight and toss his body into Gormire Lake nearby, which doesn't sound like a good solution until you learn that, like vampires, revenants can't cross bodies of water. So Tankerley is well and truly stuck. So who was the monk of Byland? Well, we don't really know. All we know is that at one time, in 15th century Byland, a monk, it might have been more than one, but we'll stick with one for now, took it upon himself to write down a rather disjointed, haphazard collection of local ghost stories. Why? Well, historians will tell you that these tales were used to remind people of the importance of a good death and to serve as cautionary tales for those who might be tempted to stray from the path of righteousness. And as someone with a medieval history degree myself, yeah, that does track. For people living in the 15th century, death was a constant companion, and the medieval Catholic Church was preoccupied with keeping death in people's minds, preparing people for death, and just all round reminding people that death was coming. 
partly because a population of parishioners fixated on making sure they have a good death, is less likely to start thinking seriously about the fact that the church taxes levied on them by your wealthy monastery are preventing them from having a good life. But also because death really was coming, and probably sooner than most of us have to worry about it. In the 15th century, you're dealing with sporadic outbreaks of plague and other diseases that can wipe out communities. Famine and drought can have devastating consequences, even in rainy England. A war at home and abroad is a near constant, and the simple act of day-to-day -day living is in itself pretty dangerous. Your house is smoky and pest-ridden, your well water is not sanitary, and mortality in childbirth is incredibly high. So, instead of fearing death and falling into despair, the church told people to focus their efforts on preparing for a good death, one that would let them rest in paradise. That way, they had nothing to fear. But this is a paranormal podcast, and I didn't start a paranormal podcast because I prefer rational historical explanations to a good yarn. And our friend the monk of Byland had to get his ideas somewhere. Even the British Library notes that the way his stories are told gives the impression of hearsay, as if these were stories he had heard from local people. For the most part, they don't really have a narrative structure. And sure, a lot of medieval fiction is sort of lacking the beginning, middle and end that we're used to today. But doesn't this hurried, non-narrative, piecemeal record of ghostly tales from his area remind you of something? Doesn't it sound a bit like... case notes? An investigator's case notes? I can't help but wonder... I have one more story for you to round out this launch episode of Frightened Kingdom. We're departing now from medieval horror, about as far as possible. This is a very modern story on a very modern theme, and it comes from Reddit. It was posted by user Frequent Remove 7833 who says, This is my unsolved mystery. There were two boys. I once remembered them properly, but over the years, the details have become vague. They both had blonde hair and bright blue-green eyes. They had longish hair. I was taller than the younger one, but shorter than the older one, but only by a bit. One was a year younger than me, and the other was two years older. They lived in an old house that was on rent on the street behind mine. The house was supposedly haunted, and my granddad's house was also supposedly haunted, and many of my friends were afraid to come round, knowing where I lived. I wasn't afraid. These boys had guinea pigs, and I quickly befriended them. Every time I came out, they were there. One day, I can't recall why, but I had to go home abruptly. I saw them later that day, or perhaps another day, and I felt they wanted to tell me something important, but I was rushing, and told them I'd come round to see them later. I came back to theirs later, but no one answered. I asked around my friends, and they didn't remember who I was referring to. I asked the old man, next door to theirs, and he also had no idea what I was talking about. He couldn't recall any of the kids. I asked my parents, because I recalled introducing them to my parents, but they too did not remember these boys. To this day, no one remembers them but me. Who they are, and where they are, I don't know. Eventually, I forgot about this event, until I was in the centre of a different city a few years ago. I saw two familiar faces with beards and hats. I saw them, and they saw me, and smiled. 
I said hello and walked past, and after seeing them, I remembered the two boys from my childhood and realized that these two men reminded me of them. When I looked back, they were nowhere to be seen. I've often wondered, could it have been them? Were the kids real after all? Unfortunately, I have no answers, but I pray that wherever they are, they're happy. This is a classic example of the modern genre of unexplained experiences that seem to suggest a glitch in the matrix, or some sort of slip between parallel universes, into one where almost everything is the same except for one small thing, as in the Mandela effect. In this case, though, it's not the spelling of a name or the title of a kid's TV show. It's two people that seemingly blipped out of existence for everyone on Earth except this Reddit user compelling stuff. Realistically speaking, children do have strange little brains, and it is, I suppose, feasible that this user invented himself two imaginary friends and simply forgot they were imaginary. But I'm struggling to imagine how, in that case, he could also have such strong memories of other people interacting with his imaginary friends. Of course, memory is notoriously unreliable, and there are terrifying studies that suggest that almost none of our memories are actually real. They're copies of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy ad infinitum. It's entirely possible that not only did this user imagine his friends, but over the years, revisiting the memory of their strange disappearance again and again, details such as introducing them to his parents and friends were added. False memories that seemed as solid and as real as any memory. Alternatively, this user's hold on his universe got a little slippery, and he found himself in a universe in which these children no longer existed, or didn't live next door to his granddad anyway. Perhaps the adult men he saw in a different city were those boys, grown up, and smiling politely as a total stranger passed them by. I'm not sure about you, listeners, but I actually find the idea that all of my memories are fake much, much more frightening than the alternative. So, yeah, I'll take that glitch in the Matrix. Thanks. That concludes the first ever episode of Frightened Kingdom. Thank you so much for joining me. If you got something from this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so that I can make more of them. Going forward, you can expect better sound quality, better theme and interstitial music, and I'll be offering more ways for you to support the show in future, so stay tuned for those announcements. Connect with Frightened Kingdom on social media for extra content, episode reminders, and more. Follow the show at Frightened Kingdom Podcast on Instagram, Frightened Kingdom Pod on TikTok, and like the Frightened Kingdom Podcast page on Facebook. You have two weeks from today to submit your stories for inclusion in the next episode. Once again, you can send me your stories in writing by email to frightenkingdom at gmail.com or record your story in audio form at speakpipe.com forward slash frightened kingdom. Stay spooky, listeners, and I'll see you back here, right here, just here, wherever you listen to podcasts in two weeks' time. <laughs>